0: in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call PlantStock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on PlantStock2024 and grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there. Today's conversation was brought to you by Plant Strong Foods. You can check out our growing assortment of insanely delicious 100% whole food plant-based goodness at plantstrongfoods.com and be sure to save 10% off your first order with the code RIP10. That's my name, RIP, followed by the number 10.
1: Desserts were really important. Even though I'm a savory person, desserts were really important to me because one of the most important messages that I can convey is that it is pattern over plate. Mm. When it comes to your health, It is the pattern of what you eat day in and day out over time that makes your health as opposed to any single plate. And so we need to have room in any dietary approach, no matter what is going on for us, to have some of the foods that we love. And so, of course, these foods are a little bit more wholesome, like the shortbread base is almond meal, Mm -hmm. the caramel is nut butter and date, and then a little dark chocolate on top.
0: and becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with. We welcome you wherever you are on your PlanStrong journey, and I hope that you enjoy the show. Hello, my PlanStrong pairs. Rip Esselstyn here, and I want to welcome you to another episode of the PlanStrong podcast. Hope you're all having a great start to your summer, and I can't believe that we're already into the summer months, but Look at here we are, June. Last week I had the incredible Dr. Will Bolshevitz on the show and of course we talked all about the gut, fiber and of course poop. Today I got a double whammy for you because we have a woman, she's a Canadian-based registered dietitian. Her name is Desirée Nielsen. She just launched a new book called Good for Your Gut, A Plant-Based Digestive Health Guide for Nourishing Recipes for Living Well. And the number one gastrointestinal issue facing Americans is constipation. And then shortly thereafter, we have Iteral Bowel Syndrome, we have acid reflux, we have got colitis, the list goes on and on and on. And unfortunately, it seems like all these gut issues have just become a part of our daily eating routine. You eat crappy food, you feel terrible, you take the purple pill or something else, you get a little bit of relief, and then you do it all over again. Rinse and repeat. And I want you all to be able to break this painful cycle and it all starts with consuming more nourishing plant foods with, you guessed it, we talked about it last week and we're going to talk about it again this week, fiber, 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 fiber that 95% of this country is deficient in. So from a nutrition perspective, Desiree is going to explain The Gut Health and Mind-Body Connection, along with sharing some of her favorite and super creative recipes to help us all protect, soothe, and heal our guts. Now, speaking of recipes, have I got a gift for you. We have just released our 2022 Summer Grilling Guide, and it is packed, jam-packed, with all of our favorite Plant Strong Summer recipes, and believe me... They are worth firing up the grill for. Plus, it has a $10 gift voucher for Plant Strong Foods and a 14-day free trial of our meal planner inside. To get your free copy of the Summer Grilling Guide, head to plantstrong.com summer and enter your email for instant access. Once again, that's plantstrong.com summer. Even if you don't suffer from gut issues like so many of us, I know you'll appreciate this conversation because, as you've been hearing, gut health literally impacts every aspect of our overall well-being. All right, let's welcome this up-and-coming Brock star, Desiree Nielsen. Desiree Nielsen, welcome to the Plant Strong Podcast.
1: Oh my God, like it is such a dream to be sitting here talking with you, so...
0: Really? Why is it such a dream?
1: why well because you know when i was transitioning from what i thought was my ethical vegetarianism into a fully plant-based diet i mean yours was one of the voices that impacted me so it's it feels like yeah like here here i am like fully in this plant-based space trying to help others you know engage and adopt a more plant-based lifestyle and i'm here talking with you so it's pretty incredible
0: yeah, it's really it's it's amazing to me to see the number of people that are just coming into the the plant-based movement arena and just contributing to getting more people on board with the good news about plants. And you are doing just that, Desiree. You've actually you've just come out with a Is this your first book?
1: So This is my third book. Wow. Yeah. My first one was a little book on an indie that I'm pretty sure only my family and maybe like my parents' friends read. Um, And then my last book was called Eat More Plants. So it was exactly that, a fully plant-based cookbook trying to help Uh. people engage in plants. And yeah, Good for Your Gut is number three.
0: So Good for Your Gut. Actually, I'm holding it right here. Got my personal copy. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's packed with so much great gut information. So tell me this, you are a registered dietitian. What made you decide to become a registered dietitian? Did you actually have some health issues yourself and that and that's what caused you to explore or what was it?
1: You know what? It was actually going vegetarian. So as a teenager, you know, I had never really thought about food. So I grew up in a Portuguese house and like food was life. Like the only thing we thought about food was like, what are we eating next? You know, like there was no concept of good or bad foods. We ate like, you know, traditional Portuguese meals. And then because my family came uh, to Canada in like 1959, then like shake and bake. So it was like caldeirada, verde, which is like a Portuguese kale stew. And then like mm-hmm. the next night shake and bake, like food was just food. And so I never really thought about the role that food played in my life until I went vegetarian as a teenager. And it really sort of opened up all of these doors for me. I was like, oh, you can change how you eat. That can have an impact on the world around you. That can have an impact on your body. And it sort of kicked off this exploration of, well, how does this impact your health? Like, what active steps can we take to change our health? And, you know, it was funny at that point, I had no idea what a dietitian actually did, And, you know, I'm of the generation where Dr. Andrew Weil, like I'm going to the bookstore and I, you know, discovered Dr. Andrew Weil and he's talking about, oh, buy yourself flowers once a week because, you know, beauty really contributes to your well-being. And my mind was blown. So I thought that I would do a nutrition undergrad and then go into integrative medicine. And once I got into nutrition, I was like, oh, what's this dietitian program? And so the deeper I got into it, I realized like so many of the things that I thought that I would do as a physician, I actually could probably do as a dietitian. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to become a dietitian. (laughs) And if it doesn't work in five years, I'm going to write my MCAT. And But I never looked back.
0: So where did you go to get your dietitian degree where they taught you, I'm assuming they did, but maybe they didn't, about kind of the power of plants? because. Well, everything I've heard, a lot of dietitians are getting the old antiquated information and not the new stuff.
1: Yeah. And I would say, you know, I studied long enough ago at the University of British Columbia that, you know, I was still actually, I went into that degree nervous. Nervous because I was already interested in integrative approaches to health. Nervous because I (laughs) was vegetarian at the time and like how that would be perceived, I think now it's changing so much. Like I was even taught, you know, just over a decade ago that you needed to eat, you know, you need to combine grains and beans at a single meal to make a quote unquote complete protein. Like we were still learning that we were still learning that non-heme iron from plant foods was inadequate in order to raise your iron stores. So, you know, that still existed. Um, But I believed in how I was eating. I believed in what I was doing. And, you know, in the decade that's come, the research has more than like more than made up for all of those old ideas about the inadequacies of plant-based eating. It's so clear now that eating a more plant-based diet is the best thing we can do for our health.
0: Why did you decide to go vegetarian in the first place?
1: You know, I wish I would say that it was an altruistic decision, but in reality, I did it to impress a boy that I liked. Uh So he played sax, he was vegetarian. I thought he was pretty cute. So I was like, oh, maybe if I become a vegetarian. (laughs) And then once I got... Then once I sort of like made the decision, did not impress the boy at all, uh, but the vegetarianism stuck. And so it really deepened this idea of like, what is my, what is my impact on this world? You know, is it right to eat animals? Like, is this something that I'm comfortable with? And, you know, I really very much believed myself not to be a vegetarian for health reasons um, or the environment, because back then we didn't really know how Mm -hmm. that impacted it, but I was an ethical vegetarian. And so, you know, in my 30s, as I was just being presented with so much new information, you know, voices like yourself, voices like, you know, Aaron Ireland, who's a, a real Vancouver hero, all of these reasons that I'm vegetarian are the reasons why I should be fully plant based.
0: And that boy that got you into vegetarianism, are you still going out with him? His name isn't Jim, is it?
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, his name was Adam. Oh, okay. And I'm- pretty sure he barely knows that i exist still even to this day i have no idea where he is in this world but um yeah if he hears this adam it was because of you so thank you for (laughs) the trajectory of my life
0: (laughs) well in in your dedication to your new book good for your gut you basically say to jim um i'm glad that i trusted my gut
1: Yeah. yeah i i met you know i don't think my husband or I neither one of us think of ourselves as sort of like old fashioned, but uh, we've been together my entire adult life. So I started dating my husband a hair after I turned 20. And we've been together ever since.
0: Beautiful. So speaking of guts, your specialty is really all about anti-inflammatory nutrition for gut health. What led you in this direction that is absolutely exploding right now. I mean, every everywhere I turn it's gut health, microbiota, microbiome, you know, auto you're uh the best way to give yourself immune protection. I mean, it just the list goes on and on and on.
1: Yeah, you know, I have again like <laughs> I love to call him Wellness Santa Claus, but Dr. Andrew Weil to thank for like that initial path in learning about inflammation. Chronic inflammation is really an underlying factor in so many chronic diseases. But back when I started thinking about anti-inflammatory nutrition, like we weren't really aware of the gut connection. Like this was back in like the late '90s, the early 2000s. I I wish I took just a single microbiology class in my undergrad. Oh my gosh, the amount that I deal with the microbiome Mm. and probiotics and, and, and all of this in my practice, like all of this had to be learned on the job, but it was really in my very first role. I mean, my only really real job as a dietitian because I was the head of nutrition for a chain of local health food stores right out of internship. And I could not believe that every day that I went into work, I was being asked about gut health stuff. Mm people were suffering. And I was like, I didn't learn about, like, I really didn't learn much about this in my undergrad. I didn't touch a lot on, you know, the gastrointestinal stuff in my internship even. So I was like, okay, these folks are suffering. They don't seem to be getting the help that they need. Like, I'm going to roll up my sleeves. I'm going to dive into the research. I'm going to see what exists. And so, you know, it was really born of necessity because I had this client population who really needed help and weren't finding the answers that they needed. And then it became personal for me as well, because after I had my first child, I got IBS. And now I had some skin in the game. So now it wasn't just a professional interest. I was like, you know, it behooves me to figure out everything that I can, Um, you know, particularly back then, like even the low FODMAP diet, which is now close to gold standard for treatment of irritable bowel syndrome. It was considered like controversial and faddish back then. So you know, we've really, really come a long way.
0: Well, we need we need to talk about low FODMAP and IBS and all that. But first, let's go a little higher up here and take more of a eighty thousand foot view. So, you talk about in your in the opening of your book how the gut health of really North America, almost a hundred million people, is literally in the toilet. Right? Uh, pun very much intended. Yeah. And I guess my question is, what in the world is going on with our diets that's causing almost 100 million people in North America to have gastrointestinal gut issues?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the first and easiest answer is it's the fiber. You know, we still have a woefully inadequate intake Mm. of fiber. The average American consumes 16 grams of fiber a day. Whereas someone in a smaller, less active body needs 25 grams a day and someone in a larger or more active body needs almost 40 grams of fiber a day. But
0: that doesn't even, that that to me doesn't even seem like a lot.
1: You know, and it it depends. It's definitely, we can eat more. When you are eating a whole food plant-based diet, we can eat more. Um, But the data shows that if we simply hit our targets, like our digestive well being is just going to be so much better than it is now. And I think people don't often understand what the impact of fiber is. I mean, it seems like so fussy and so dietitian be like, wah, wah, eat your fiber. Mm. But fiber does, especially when you think about the lens of like the microbiome, like fiber becomes a lot sexier <laughs> than you yeah. used to be. You know, because The indigestible carbohydrates, like, and it's important to eat a wide variety of plant foods because plants have so many different kinds of fibers and Mm -hmm. carbohydrates that we don't digest and absorb, which is really critical because they stay in contact with the gut tissue. They sweep the gut surface. They help ensure Mm. proper turnover of the gut cells so that gut barrier stays intact. And then they make it to our colon where, like, those trillions of bacteria are living. They ferment. And they do all sorts of beneficial things for our body, including making something called short-chain fatty acids, which are just like they sound. They're like tiny little fats, um, but namely one called butyrate, critically important. I, love, just, the, I
0: love the butyrate. Love it.
1: <laughs> I mean, butyrate fan club right here. <laughs> right here. Like, yes. I think I need a T-shirt. like butyrate. Fan, that would actually make an awesome T-shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, so butyrate is absorbed right directly into the gut cell like 90% of it goes to fuel our gut cells. So we Mm -hmm. feed our gut bacteria. They ferment, they make butyrate and they feed us back. It's incredible.
0: To back up a little bit, you said that a lot of this takes place in the colon. What is your definition of the colon? Is this the small intestines, the large intestines? Is this, what is that? Uh,
1: so to me, the colon is the large intestine. So we have our small intestine and then our large intestine. And if we want to get even more specific about where most of these bacteria are, they're in the ascending colon, mm. which is the first part of the colon. Which, If you give yourself a little pat on like the lower right side of your abdomen, like You're giving your bacteria a high five.
0: Oh, good. Yeah, I'll do that right now. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) Hey. (laughs) Uh, uh, um, Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah. So, you know, so that whole butyrate feeding your gut cells thing is really, really important. But butyrate does more than that. Even though it's only the third most abundant short-chain fatty acid that your Mm. bacteria make, butyrate is critical because it interacts with your immune system. 70% of our immune system is associated with our gut space and it helps ensure appropriate inflammation because you need inflammation. Like in all this anti-inflammatory talk, we can get the wrong idea that inflammation is always bad, but inflammation is actually a critical branch of your immune function, but you want it to be not too much, only when needed and turn off when it isn't. And butyrate helps us with that. Butyrate also supports nervous system function because our gut has a ton of nerves. Like we actually have more nerves in the nervous system of our gut than we do in our spinal cord. Wow. Yeah.
0: So a couple things you said there that I want to, I want to visit for first is you said 70% of our immune function is located in our guts. That's just phenomenal. So if you have a healthy gut, you're going to be, you're going to have a strong immune system, Right.
1: Yeah. And we have data to show, for example, that probiotics help protect against upper respiratory infection, aka cold and flu. And if you're like, how is that even possible? It is because so much of our immune system function is gut associated.
0: And then the next thing is you mentioned all those nerves that we have, more nerves in our did you say stomach or or or, or in our guts? general the whole yeah. gut? The okay. Whole More gut. nerves in our guts than we do have than we have in our spinal column which is mind mind boggling to me, but you know, you open up the whole book saying that, you know, say hello to our second brain. So why do you why are you calling our gut our second brain? Is it because of all the nerves?
1: It is because of all the nerves, like that's exactly why we call it our second brain. And, you know, it was actually a physician, uh, Dr. Michael Gershon, who, you know, coined that term a couple of decades ago in his book by the same name that really just started my fascination with this Mm. whole thing. And, you know, our gut is heavily innervated. And so we have, you know, like in high school, we learn about two main branches of the nervous system. So like the sympathetic, which is the fight or flight and the parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest. Some people actually consider the enteric or gut-associated nervous system to be like a third main branch of nervous system function. And like our nervous system is so important to our gut because it determines like how the gut moves. You know, as soon as we swallow, we give up conscious control of the movement of the gut. But like food has to move, you know, like <laughs> you have to get it from point A to point B. You got to get it out of there. And it's your nervous system that determines that. Yeah um it also determines like digestive secretions but the vast majority of communication between like the brain and the gut comes from the gut on up to the brain
0: okay we're going to take a quick break i want to read you an email that i received from a woman named Misty and she starts out rip it's february 2021 and my mother-in-law who was pushing 80 was having mini strokes She collapsed, shattered her leg, and laid there in the floor for an hour, assuming someone would just drop on by. Her neck veins were 80 and 90% clogged, and they found evidence of strokes. She got through it and is fine, but it left me at 62, remembering my own mom's strokes and how they completely debilitated her and left her incapacitated for years. I can take that I'm going to die, but I'll be damned if I'm going out that way. I whined about it to my daughter, Jackie, and she gave me your name. I immediately found your website, looked at some of the recipes, and thought that I could live with that. I ordered your books and read the Engine 2 seven-day rescue diet in one sitting. Next time during a long road trip, I asked my husband, a former cattle rancher, if we could stop by at Subway so I could get a veggie delight. He said he wasn't going on my stupid diet, and I told him I didn't care if we pulled into the Arby's, but I wasn't going to eat that, and he could eat whatever way he wanted. He started the diet the next day, and we both have not looked back. As you noted in your book, the results were immediate. Cholesterol, triglycerides, blood pressure, all in the green for the first time in years. We were always somewhat careful about our diet before, but eliminating meat, oil, dairy, and salt has been fabulous. My mother-in-law, born and bred in 1950s Iowa, who baked and ate everything white, butter, sugar, flour, has even adopted your diet. She's not all the way there, but this Iowa farm girl has successfully eliminated dairy, most meats, and oil-based dressings. She made us your oatmeal pancakes, and they were an enormous improvement over her usual egg-based casseroles. She rebounded from her fall, hits the treadmill three times a week, lost weight and looks better than I've seen her in years. Not bad for 79. My son Andy, normally a healthy active 25 year old, was found to have high blood pressure and now even he has started examining the salt content on nutritional labels. As you pointed out, food tastes better when you don't disguise it with salt. So you're a hit with our family. I reread your book for recipe ideas and to re-inform myself about why nutritional yeast is better than cheese. Cheese is the hardest thing we're still trying to eliminate. The phony cheeses are oil-based, as you say. So if I'm gonna sin, it will be with a nice pepper jack. You've helped us make enormous changes We don't feel like we're missing out on anything and are monumentally better off than before Jackie gave us your name. Thanks, Rip, Misty. Well, thank you, Misty. I love it when the whole family works together to improve their health and start to break that cyclical family destiny of disease. And if you didn't know it, We have got the ability for you to start the seven-day challenge at any time. Just join our free online community at community.plantstrong.com and learn more and connect with thousands of people just like you who are emboldened to take control of their health destiny through the power of plants. Now, speaking of wonderful leafy green plants, let's get back to Desiree will you so for our listeners will you let us know from the mouth to the rectum like what is going on with food how many feet of whatever do we have because i you talk about it in the book and i found it to be really uh, educational
1: yeah so you know what's going on in the gut. i mean and i i won't memorize I- never memorize this number off the top of my head. So if you have the exact, I think it's like 33 feet.
0: 30, 30 feet is what you have. Okay. In the there we go. Yeah.
1: Okay. Perfect. So my memory's not that bad.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's about 30 feet all crammed into your, like, what is a very small space? Cause remember your lungs are in there as well. Like your yeah. digestive tract is literally folded and twisted into like the most incredible origami of like all of mankind And it's really important because your gut, not only does it digest and absorb absolutely everything you eat and drink, but while we think of our gut as being inside of us because we can't see it, just like you said, from mouth to rectum, it's actually continuous with the outside world. And so that gut space becomes a really important barrier between you and the outside world. So your gut has this really difficult Mm -hmm. job to do. It's got to like let in all the stuff you need, block out all the stuff that can make you sick. And that's part of the reason why your body sort of in its wisdom puts so much immune activity there to make sure that you're protected against like any bacteria that could have hitched right on your fork, for example.
0: Okay. Now, what do you see? Because how long have you been like seeing clients and working with people?
1: Gosh, I think it's been like maybe 13 years. I think okay. it's been 13 years. Yeah.
0: So you've probably seen a lot. What are the most common gut issues that you're seeing, whether it's you know constipation, IBS, celiac? I don't know.
1: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. All of the above. But IBS is definitely a huge piece of it um, because it's just so much more common. Than so many of the other conditions. So IBS is roughly 10 to 12% of the population. Um, in Canada, that number might be even higher. It might be as high as 18%. Like our guts are not doing well in Canada whatsoever. Um, so we do a lot of work with IBS. We also do a lot of work with the inflammatory bowel diseases. And so these are um, very very significant, very damaging inflammatory diseases, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis um, that affect, uh, you know, over a quarter of a million folks in Canada. And it's coming up because it's on the increase to be 1% of the population. You know, and we know like celiac disease is 1% of the population, but these inflammatory bowel diseases are getting like that. And they're so significant that folks need really expensive IV medications often. And the inflammation can get so bad that the only way to make it better is to cut out the part of the diseased bowel. And particularly in our practice, like these are the folks who so often come to us like drinking Red Bull and like eating like white bread bologna sandwiches because their gut is so irritated that plants in the moment can feel really challenging to digest. Um, And one of the things we excel at doing is getting those clients Up to a very plant-based diet. Most people don't think that actually can be done, and we do it every single day.
0: Well, what's what's so you know we started out talking about how there's a hundred million people in North America that have some sort of like dysbiosis in their guts. But to me, I'm actually surprised it's not a lot more than that because when I look, and this isn't not North America, this is just America. But when I look at The data and how your average American eats, the average American, like 94% of their diet is coming from processed refined foods, animal products, dairy products, and and only 6% is coming from whole plant-based foods. So, I mean, I'm amazed it's not 250 million.
1: Well, you know, and I think a big part of this and one of the reasons why uh, it's never TMI for me and I will talk about anything is that there's a huge stigma. There's two two things that I think that are contributing to it. One, there's a huge stigma around gut health. Some kind of thing we talk about around the water cooler, right? And some people, because as soon as I say I have IBS, like that means like there are things going wrong with my bowel movements. And the, the stigma and the, the fear and the insecurity around having those conversations, some people may not even go talk to their doc about this. There's a lot, you know, even with celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disease, uh, it's thought that the vast majority of people with celiac disease remain undiagnosed because we're just not talking about it. The other, the other thing that I think plays a big role is that we normalize what's happening to us. And this is a huge thing that I talk about in the book, is this idea of normal versus common, right? It's exceedingly common to be constipated. Like 25% of us are constipated and have symptoms of 25% of us. Like, that's intense. But because that's normal for us, we're like, well, this is just how my bowels are. Like, my bowels are sluggish, whatever. Mm -hmm. But that's actually not physiologically normal for the body. And there are things that you can do to make it better. So I think the other side of this is like, we could have these things going on. We could be constipated. We could have like loose stools. We could have painful gas and bloating, but we just don't seek help for it.
0: And, and they're going into their doctors. And I would imagine that most doctors are not telling them to go on a plant slanting diet. I had a woman that I was working with and she said that her, because she said she was going to the bathroom like once a week. And her physician said, yeah, you just have a lazy bowel syndrome didn't say anything about food or what she could do and of course within 28 days she was going to the bathroom 2 to 3 times a day yeah you no know, right so she didn't have lazy bowel syndrome
1: and and it's one of the biggest challenges because still as health professionals we are not we are not communicating we are not interconnected in the way that we should be, in the way that I really imagine healthcare should be, Mm -hmm. you know, and we've, we've had the good fortune of interacting with like many great plant-based gastroenterologists. I mean, like Dr. B, like so many incredible, I wish all of our clients had someone like Dr. B or Dr. Mendez helping to show them the way, but you know, in our practice, It took us a long time to show the gastroenterologists whose patients we worked with what we can do to the point where all of a sudden the gastroenterologists were referring out to us. They're like, oh my gosh, you're still having trouble. Go see Desiree. Like She can help fix you up. We can do this with nutrition, but it's often not top of mind. It's like, these are the medications. If you're still not getting symptom relief, oh, too bad.
0: Do you agree with this, this quote, you are what you eat? Do you agree with that? Or do you agree it should be you are what you absorb?
1: Oh, I love that you asked me this because I'm a health food girl, and we used to say you are not what you eat. You are what you digest and uh, absorb. Mm-hmm. If you think about the microbiome, we go back to the original. You are what you eat because you are what you digest and absorb, but you are also what you do not digest and absorb because that impacts your gut microbiome.
0: Right. Meaning, and when you say we are what we do not absorb, are you talking about the fibers that are so vitally important for your bacteria?
1: Exactly. You know, like Mm. by the time your gut contents get to your colon, to your gut microbiome, like you've digested and absorbed between 80 to 95% of everything you've eaten and drank. And so the more we consume fiber, the more undigested material and yeah. the happier and healthier a microbiome is, which is so important because in wellness, we have this idea of like, quote unquote, hard to digest foods or like, mm. oh, this is hard to digest. Therefore, it's bad for you. It's like, no, like plants are good for you because they are hard to digest. Like that is exactly what you want because you want them to be hard to digest and all that stuff you don't digest goes to the microbiome.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, if let's say I come in to you to see you, I'm a I'm a patient or client of yours, and I've got some severe IBS going on. What's your approach as far as are you into elimination diets, or do you think that we're sh- shooting ourselves in the foot with these elimination diets, and we're not seeing the forest through the trees? Talk to me about that.
1: Yeah. So, you know, generally speaking elimination diets are a bad idea in our practice, always the least restrictive path is the best path. And so it really depends on like how you're eating when you come to see me. So we do extensive, we get diet journals. We understand your medical history, your nutritional history. And so if I see in your diet record, it's like, there's room to move here. There's a lot of hyperprocessed foods. There's mm. not a lot of fiber. We go there first. Like how can we get the plant foods up in your diet? But because you said IBS specifically, we do have the low FODMAP diet, which is technically an elimination. And it's one of the only places where we actually have strong evidence to support a dietary elimination. And what FODMAPs are, are exactly as we spoke about before they are the hard to digest and very fermentable carbohydrate components of foods. FODMAPs are really good for most of us, they are found in garlic. They're found in apples. They're found in lentils. Like these are the things we want to eat so that we feed our gut microbiome. And the only challenge is, is once that switch has flipped on IBS, because we know the nervous system in the gut is, is a little bit faulty Mm -hmm. because we know there's tons of pain associated with fermentation. um, There's lots of gas. There's lots of loose stools associated with undigested carbohydrates. Only in IBS, a really short-term elimination, maybe six, eight, you know, 12 weeks max has been shown, you know, roughly 70 to 80% of people to improve symptoms, but it's temporary. And Mm -hmm. the one thing I want to reiterate, because we're like, oh, well, FODMAPs must be bad. No, they're not bad, nor did they cause your IBS. It's that once this process is ongoing, we just need to tweak your intake to help calm down your symptoms.
0: So in the very beginning, you said you want to put somebody, when they have to go on a kind of an elimination diet, on the least restrictive. And is that because you like the diversity of, of food?
1: Yeah, I mean, I love the diversity of food. And our health is generally not built on what we don't eat, but what we do eat. You know, and, and we have this even with respect to, you know, like vegetarian and vegan diets, like it's the plants that help. And so, you know, it's really important that we're actually eating these whole plant foods because this is where the nutrition doesn't come from Oreos. I mean, I love an Oreo. Love it. Super Mm -hmm. fun. But the nutrition (laughs) doesn't come from the Oreo. Our health doesn't come from the Oreo. So we actually have to get these plant foods in. We know that diversity is important, particularly for our gut microbiome. We have data from the American Gut Project to show that eating more than 30 different plant foods a week is associated with a more resilient and diverse gut microbiome. So that's super important. But the other thing that's super important is that like our body needs nutrients. You know, we need vitamins, we need minerals. uh, We need phytochemicals to help our immune system, to help our gut tissues grow and repair, do their optimal work. And so the more we restrict, the more we set ourselves up for potential deficiencies. And then as if that weren't enough, restrictive diets can really harm our relationship with food. Mm. Sometimes they feel like an empowering step because you've been sick for a long time. And so you're like, now I have something tangible I can do. I am empowered to change my health. For some people, that's how it feels for other people it can really challenge their relationship with food.
0: So you're a big fan of people adding what's beneficial into their diets. And you have your daily three. Yeah. Can you tell me what those are and what what you would like to see people getting more of?
1: Yeah, I love that. We practice what I call positive additive nutrition. I want to focus on what to eat more of because eating more of is way more fun than eating less of any day. Mm -hmm. Um, But the daily three was born of just, you know, when we sort of take out these restrictions that so many people live, they're like, what do I do? I feel adrift. How do I know if I'm eating well? And so I love these soft structures like the daily three to be like, oh, I got my daily three today. I'm doing okay. Mm -hmm. So the daily three is omega-3 rich seeds.
0: What are some of those seeds that you like to see people eating?
1: Yeah, so it's a daily dose of two to three tablespoons of either chia, ground flax, or hemp hearts.
0: Is there one that you prefer if somebody was just to do one, or do you like the combination because of the variety and fiber and everything?
1: I love them all. They all have their place. I feel like I do play favorites. I love hemp hearts particularly because they don't gel they're not super high in soluble fiber. So you can literally throw them on anything. Like you can throw them on a salad. You can pop them in anything. They're really easy to use. Yeah. Number two are green leafy vegetables. So this is everything Ooh. from broccoli to kale to bok choy, gai lan, um, all the green things. Two cups of those every day.
0: This audience, we love our green leafies. Yeah. We're Actually, our goal, our goal is to get five to six a day.
1: I mean, that's like valedictorian super (laughs) bonus points, like daily three is the baby (laughs) step.
0: Yeah. And again, and again, with those, and and now with your leafy greens, you're also getting like lots of omega threes.
1: Yeah, totally. So, and then the last is the legumes. These are our lentils, mung beans, chickpeas, black beans. And here the dose is variable. The dose is anywhere between a quarter cup and three quarter cup a day. And the reason for this is you have got to train your gut for that high fiber life the same way you train your legs for a marathon. And if you're like, oh, I'm going to eat three quarters of a cup. I don't normally eat beans, but I'm going to do that every single day starting tomorrow. And you're going to have a lot of gas. You're going to have a lot of bloating. You are going to rue the day you ever met me. (laughs) So I really want to help people train their gut. So we started a quarter cup and we keep it consistent. We eat it every single day. And when our gut adjusts, we move up to half a cup, and then we move up to three quarters of a cup.
0: I love those daily three. The one thing, you know, the thing with the the legumes, the beans, is they have, I think, just about more fiber than any other plant-based food. When I look at charts of plant-based foods and fiber, so I can see why that is. If you haven't built up those gut muscles, right? Or the bacteria, it'll, it'll just, oh man, tear you up. So what, what is your, what is your advice when it comes to bloating and gas and, and what are some like fixes people can do?
1: Yeah. So, you know, bloating seems like it's going to be such a cut and dried thing. And a lot of people assume that food intolerances are causing their bloating. Great examples. Like I had chili last night, and maybe gas meat, therefore I'm intolerant to beans, which couldn't be further from the truth. But bloating is actually super complex. It can come from stress uh, because when you're in that fight or flight, blood actually diverts from the digestive system and your gut just doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Um, It can come from too tight of a waistband and sitting and compressing your abdomen all day. Um, It can come from uh, IBS. You might need to actually go check it out with a doc. But if it's just like the garden variety, like, oh, I'm really bloated today. Like, mm-hmm. what do I actually do? There's a few things. One, move. Gentle movement is critical. Like a hyper vigorous, like 10 mile run ain't going to do it. It'll actually make it worse. But like an after dinner walk. Some folks call it a fart walk, but you <gasps> know, you can call it what you like.
0: <laughs> yep.
1: Uh, gentle movement, lots of water because two of those things are going to encourage movement. And then I love either ginger or fennel. So ginger is what we call a prokinetic, which means it l- helps the movement of the gut. So you can chew candy ginger, have some pickled ginger, make a ginger tea, or fennel seeds. Fennel seeds are a traditional remedy for gas, um, which many people do find work. If you go to like an Indian restaurant, you might get these tiny little candy-coated fennel seeds at the end of the meal to aid your digestion. You can chew fennel seeds out of the cupboard, or you can make some fennel tea. Both of those are great options just to help get things moving.
0: So do you, I mean, so speaking of farts, do you know, like on average, like what, I mean, have you read any studies on what is the average, what's the average amount of gas somebody passes in a day? It's actually
1: like gallons. Like it is gallons of gas, like multiple gallons, like easily three, four gallons a day. Um, (laughs) If you're about that plant life, like you are definitely at the higher end of that spectrum. (laughs) And it's, a fact. And I think this is the thing too, because in wellness, we're like, Oh, if you're really gassy, something's wrong with you. You have a food Uh intolerance." No, if you are eating, if your gut works, if you have a, like a good, healthy microbiome that is fermenting fibers, you're going to make gas. Like it's totally normal. The ideal is that it passes generally without you noticing most of the time, not too smelly. It's not painful. Like it's not too noisy and the vast majority of it, we actually pass when we sleep. So you can think about that with your partner.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so in the, in the book, you talk about scent-free farts. I mean, is yeah. there such a thing as a scent-free fart? And how do you get one?
1: <laughs> there, are, there are scent-free farts, you know? And there's a little bit of science behind, like, why, why farts can be scent-free or not. Most of the gases our gut bacteria produce are actually totally odorless. There is only one that smells, that's the hydrogen sulfide gas. And so, I mean, if you love the cruciferous veggies like I do, the cauliflower, the broccoli, the kale, those contain sulfur. It's a very good thing, but they do contain sulfur so they can make your farts a little bit more odorous. The other thing to note is that women tend to have more of hydrogen sulfide producing bacteria than men. So So, does that
0: mean that women fart more than men?
1: Well, and it could stink more. I mean, we like to pretend our farts don't stink, but they do. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: I, oh, what about like m- meat? Doesn't meat like mess, mess with people's farts? Isn't that a, a good reason to like cut, <laughs> cut out the meat?
1: Yeah. So, and, and here actually the story with sulfur becomes interesting because sulfur is a component of amino acids, AKA protein. Mm-hmm. And so when you consume a lot of meat, it can actually drive the production of these sulfate-reducing bacteria, um, which is not great for us. Mm. And is actually associated with inflammation and risk of, you know, uh, colorectal cancer, all of those kind of things. So when we eat green leafy vegetables, some people are like, well, there's sulfur in them too. But in fact, while they might make your farts a little bit more stinky, they are not associated with all of those negative outcomes of of the microbiome inflammation connection with eating meat whatsoever.
0: Mm. Mm. So with your with your um <clears throat> clients how how detailed and in-depth do you get like when you're talking about their poops because because you're I would imagine your poop can tell a lot about your gut health.
1: It can actually and you know sometimes it's hard like Like I said, it's not TM, like never TMI. Like we talk about it all and it can be really difficult. And, you know, these things can feel embarrassing for people. And, you know, there are plenty of tears shed in our offices sometimes when we really sort of get into how impactful digestive disease is. You know, I've had clients who are scared to go to work in the morning, like back when we like commuted, right? If someone has like a 90 minute commute, IBS is typically worse in the morning and they would be worried and have had experiences where they didn't make it along their commute because of their urge to go to the bathroom. And so it's, it's true. We talk a lot about like, like, tell me like, how often are you going? Like, Mm. what form mm. is it is it is it liquid like exactly like what does it look like we can mm-hmm. see if people are malabsorbing fat if their stools look greasy or if they have a grayish whitish cast to them um there's a lot that our poop tells us about
0: yeah. us. yeah well just for those that are listening that have ibs and have to make a commute um so during covid we took a trip we rented a, a van a minivan and we Went all over kind of um, northeastern United States, and we actually bought a little toilet, right? And you put a bag in there, and then if somebody had to go number two, we just kind of, you know, everybody stood around, and they, they, and they, and they went. But you know, you, you do what you got to do, and so there's ways to address that, right?
1: Yeah, and there is and you know one of our one of the biggest challenges too is that the there is a very deep connection between mental well-being and incidence of anxiety and depression in uh, the digestive diseases and conditions like IBS. And you know part of it is is what happens in the gut and how the nervous system in the gut changes and how that affects our mental well-being, but a big part of that also is if you wake up and that's your worry today, like that creates a huge am- amount of anxiety about how these disease processes are affecting your life.
0: Yeah. Well, and you and you talk about how daily stress can totally affect our gut. And it seems like a lot of people are stressed out these days.
1: Yeah. And we don't realize we are, you know, and I think, I think the hallmark of modern living is that we are so used to stress that mm-hmm. consciously we think we're not stressed. But like if you are a lawyer working 70 hours a week and it's COVID and, you know, you had a like a big deadline or even just like a kitchen rental, like all of those things are so enormously stressful. We can fool our conscious brain, but we cannot fool our nervous system and therefore we cannot fool our gut.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you a question, Desiree. When was the last time you felt like you had diarrhea or or constipated or had, you know, a gut issue?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I've been really lucky that I've only had two major flares of IBS. So the first was like when I actually got IBS and it took me a year to figure out what was going on and get it under control. And the last one was in 2016.
0: Hmm. But
1: a great example is this week. There's so much, you know, my book just came out. There is so much excitement, all of these incredible opportunities that I'm genuinely excited about it, but actually my bowels are a mess this week. Mm-hmm. They're an absolute mess this so
0: week. So what does that look like for you when you say they're a mess? Does that yeah, mean, so I have like a, Yes.
1: Yeah, so I am going to the bathroom a little bit more than normal, but it's not as formed as normal. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's not as formed as normal. And my stomach is so gurgly, like yeah. so gurgly. I'm really lucky that I haven't experienced a lot of pain in my gut in years, mm-hmm. but like, it's literally like when you watch like a bubbly, fizzy drink, like all those bubbles just 24-7, like that's what my gut feels like as we speak.
0: Yeah, I know um, before a big competition or a big event, uh, I'll, I'll definitely uh, get that way for sure. Um, okay, let's move on. Um, so you've got this amazing recipe section in the book with 90 recipes. And you and you break everyone down as either being protective, healing, or uh, I think it's was it restorative,
1: soothe,
0: soothe, yes, yes, yeah. soothe. And so I went through and there's I just earmarked a bunch of the ones that I really was fascinated with. Yeah. I'm going to start on page 119. It's the savory miso porridge with crispy kale. That look at that look at that <laughs> it and, is and,
1: so delicious. and
0: and, and is that, is that a, like, that's more of a breakfast, right?
1: That is a breakfast. Absolutely. You know, a lot of, I'm a savory breakfast person more than a sweet breakfast person. I will just out myself right there. Um, but I love savory oatmeal because really we think of it as inherently a sweet food, but it is a neutral grain base. Like you can do whatever you want with it. And so I really wanted to play up these beautiful flavors of, of miso and tahini and the crispy kale just makes it for me because otherwise it's, you know, an oatmeal texture that doesn't have as much texture on its own. But then that little crispy kale, a yeah. yeah. little bit of extra plant and then lots of texture.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you had me at crispy kale. Um, so this next recipe is on page 138. It's the chickpea shakshuka. I, some of these <laughs> names. What in the world is a shakshuka? I've never so, heard of that.
1: So shakshuka is a dish that is eaten um, throughout the Eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East. It's a really common Israeli dish, for example. Um, And traditionally, it is tomatoes cooked in eggs. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sorry, eggs cooked in tomatoes, the opposite. So really beautiful. So I just took chickpeas. Chickpeas are often my substitute for eggs in like Mm -hmm. all shapes and forms. So I just did a chickpea version It's really beautifully spiced. It's really fresh, great with like some pita bread or just like some nice sourdough A beautiful brunch.
0: Well, and one of the things that you recommend that people doing when they're transitioning to a plant-based diet and they're getting off the meat is to swap, not remove. Yeah. And
1: and this is so important because in our practice, like we see folks who they've just been plant-based for three months, six months or a year, and they're They'll come and they'll say, Why am I hungry all the time? Or, like, why am I feeling tired? And it's because they just took all the food they typically eat and pulled out the animal products, yeah. forgetting that they were getting fats and proteins and minerals. And so it's like, Well, well we didn't. Calories. Put like, yeah, and calories, <laughs> like an actual cat, like, you know, we like to poo poo this stuff, but we need energy, like our bodies mm-hmm. need energy. So, because they took it out and they didn't put back tofu lentils, chickpeas, hemp hearts, they didn't provide those nutrients. And so as soon as we do that, as soon as we figure out the swap that works for their meals, yeah. they feel so much better.
0: Yeah. Next page 145, we got the tofu okonomiyaki. <laughs> I know I didn't pronounce that right. How do you pronounce it? Do you know?
1: Okonomiyaki. There, there you go. Yeah, so I spent a bunch of time in Japan in my late teens and early 20s and Okonomiyaki is a dish that is um, local to the Osaka region. And you go to Okonomiyaki restaurants and it's typically like an egg base. Yeah. Yeah, there it is. And so you go and you choose your fillings, always a cabbage, but then like some other proteins, that kind of stuff. And you make it yourself, which is really cool. So clearly, this is not a traditional version, but I love Japan and I love Japanese food so much. I wanted to create a plant-based alternative. Again, chickpea flour, right? It just works so well for eggs. And then there's smoked tofu and a little ginger mayo because mayo is life to me.
0: Yeah, well, um, <laughs> well, one of the things that you know, we we on at Plant Strong, we're not huge fans of oil. Yeah. And I know, I know that you have oil. So for people that want to make these recipes, can you just leave out the oil? Will they work okay?
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, when we're cooking, it's so easy to swap it out. And even for things like I mean mayo. So like my beloved mayo, yeah. it's really easy to do a tahini. Yeah. You know, you can do a ginger tahini like beautiful.
0: Yeah. Well and when you also use some you use some nuts too in some of your like kind of cheesy stuff like you like cashews and yeah. I mean nuts. I love it
1: I love a cashew cream. I love a hemp actually makes a delicious Mm. cream. And I know a lot of people don't make creams from hemp, but it works beautifully.
0: All right, let's go to page 190, where you've got a baked eggplant rolls with kale and cauliflower ricotta. The reason why I specifically chose this one is because I can't stand eggplant. And so if I like this, I will be stunned and amazed. So I want to try that.
1: You and my husband. Oh, my gosh. So, I mean... I love eggplant and so like my love for eggplant goes into my books. Yeah. It's true, it's not a texture that everyone loves, um, but I but I do think this one is very delicious.
0: Uh-huh. Um, what about Gado-gado on page 211? <laughs> See, again, I love some of your names are just so exotic. Yeah. What
1: Gado gado is a traditional Indonesian salad. So, um, when I was in Bali as a teenager, um, it was like one of the only vegetarian things on offer. And so, this is typically uh, served as a peanut sauce mm. um, over like beautiful cooked veggies with tempeh. It's just so filling. And it's when you want. Salad esque, but more than a salad. You know, you're craving something heartier. It's just really flavorful, lots of ginger, like a beautiful peanut sauce.
0: Yeah. Um, you have on page 263 an amazing seeded grain free bread. I look at that mm-hmm. and I'm like, I have to make that. And I'm going to see if I can find it here. 263. Yeah. Here it is. Oh my gosh. I mean, that is so just hearty and like oh. dense looking.
1: I. It was one of those things that I did a happy dance when I got this recipe right because so it is inspired um, by Sarah Britton at My New Roots because she came up with the life-changing loaf of bread, which mm. was heavily seeded, but not fully grain-free. So I wanted to try a fully seeded loaf because so many of us don't eat seeds. I feel like seeds are the underappreciated cousins of nuts. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's 100% seeds. And if you know those traditional European rye, those Volkornbrot-style rye Mm. breads, it has that kind of texture. It's hearty and rich Mm. and delicious. Mm -hmm. Very filling. Very filling.
0: So on page 278, you have a chocolate and peanut butter caramel shortbread bar. You mean to tell me that I can eat these and heal my gut? Talk to me.
1: You sure can. So, you know, desserts were really important. Even though I'm a savory person, desserts were really important to me because one of the most important messages that I can convey is that it is pattern over plate. Mm. When it comes to your health, it is the pattern of what you eat day in and day out over time that makes your health as opposed to any single plate. And so we need to have room in any dietary approach, no matter what is going on for us, To have some of the foods that we love and so of course these foods are a little bit more wholesome like the shortbread base is almond meal Mm -hmm. the caramel is nut butter and date and then a little dark chocolate on top
0: yeah yeah well i gotta say it's it's a spectacular lineup of recipes that you've created here and i don't know who you got as your photographer and your food stylist but it is a these are phenomenally well photographed um Put together f- photos. Crazy.
1: I have the best team. It's Janice Nicolay and Sophia McKenzie. They are dream workers.
0: Wow. And so um, our time is coming to a close here. But, you know, in reading your acknowledgments, I saw that you have lots of different poop jokes. Can you hit us with a poop joke? <laughs> am, I, am I putting you on the spot?
1: Oh my gosh. They're more like, quips than jokes you know like i love to say things like you know from mouth to poop shoot for example (laughs) instead of to the end to the yes yes (laughs) yeah it's just that i love to talk about poop i did a whole like seven minute presentation on the science of farts like oh my god don't invite me to a dinner party unless you're you know expecting some inappropriate conversation well
0: i i want to have you back i want to have you back because this we both have a hard stop here but um let's have you back. Okay. And we can do round two of this, but Desiree Nielsen, I am so excited for your new book that just is launching, right? Good for your gut. Um, This is something that everybody needs in their life is a healthier gut. Um, And um, boy, thanks for bringing this out into the, uh, into the universe.
1: Thank you so much for helping me share it
0: yeah yeah my pleasure hey hit me hit me with the plant strong fist ready boom plant strong (laughs) i can't wait to have desiree back on the podcast so we can dive deeper into the new and exciting world of gut health it's literally one more area of our health that we can optimize with a whole food plant-based diet and it is wonderful news and we are just starting on this gut health revolution. We'll be sure to link resources for this episode in the show notes at the episode page at plantstrongpodcast.com. In the meantime, eat your fiber and of course, keep it plant strong. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kortowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for
1: listening.